I took an athlete where they were kind of running 90 to 95% consistently in a training block and then ramped that up to 100% and they could hit their race speeds in training but after two weeks of that they got slow off and then they, this was something that had happened a couple of years before at the same time so there was definitely something going on and I think in the past we've, we've always been told speed work should be there all the time in all athletes and, and it's a really important stimulus but if you if you look a bit deeper actually I don't think it's doing what it says on the tin and actually if you if you have a trainer who can consistently apply a very high speed stimulus in training they, they fry themselves it's like imagine doing four to six 60 meter races in one day like they're going to take weeks to come back off that and we're doing that on a week to week basis that was physical preparation and track and field coach Ross Jeffs speaking on speed training and individual athletic responses. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, gym aware, K-Box, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments, allowing me to look at the 10 meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none. Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 145 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith. Thanks for being with us, and we have an incredible show for you today. I mean, they're all incredible. I know I say it a lot, <laughs> but I seriously just love talking to such a huge bandwidth of intelligent and uh, brilliant people doing great things in our field. And Ross Jeffs is a guy who I learned so much from, not only in just how he has tied some things together that I've been thinking about that have been floating around. And so quickly about Ross, uh, he currently coaches at the Regional Training Center in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. He has a track and field background, but Ross has also worked with world-class athletes from a variety of sports in the physical preparation context. He's also been mentored by Jonas Dodu uh, within the Speedworks coaching system, who has been a previous guest on this show and is one of the brightest sprint training coaches in the world. So Ross mainly works within the scope of track and field currently. And I first actually heard of him just a few weeks ago when he put out an article on trainers versus racers on Simply Faster, a blog post. 
And it was actually a post that didn't get a whole lot of shares. And I think we all know that sometimes the best articles are not necessarily those that are the ones that have the most shares behind their name. And this was one that, that as soon as I read it, it really intrigued me because I instantly knew that there was a lot, a very deep uh, collection of a lot of uh, facets of individual performance going on behind this, such as neurotyping and the strength of the nervous system. And does uh, if you're an athlete where, like we just talked about on Christian Thibodeau's latest podcast, if you're one of those athletes who are like type 2B or 3 and your nervous system, you don't have as much dopamine sensitivity and you don't have what would, we would say is a strong nervous system. Now, how do you do speed training? And I've been a big fan for a long time as well of like the idea of, of easy strength, of not putting the gas pedal all the way down in the weight room, not getting emotionally ramped up, leaving reps in the bank, and then seeing how that kind of filters in throughout the spectrum of, of athlete types and responses and neurotransmitter profiles. But uh, sprinting is one of those things that I've always thought, well, you to get faster, it has to be max. <laughs> um, and in many cases, it does. Uh, but with it, and max is totally dependent on what is the actual max. We see this in Zitsiorski's Science and Practice. What's the absolute max you're capable of? And then what is actually displayed in training versus competition? And this is the reason Soviets or Bulgarians or whoever it was had a different you know, classifications of what's your max. Anyways, not to get drowned out in all this minutia, but uh, Ross put together a fantastic article on how he took an athlete who was less than responsive to a typical high-quality speed training program and how he altered that program to get her great results. And that's what it's all about because uh, we talk about it's so trendy to say it depends in this field. And I say it all the time. I'm no stranger to that. But to be able to say it depends and now let me tell you why is just such a beautiful thing. And Ross did an awesome job of explaining it on that article, which is linked up in the show notes of this podcast. But for the episode today, Ross and I sit down to chat. Well, virtually, of course, he's in the Netherlands and I'm in California. Um, but Ross takes us through his system of classifying athletes and, and how he's kind of come up through individualization, like the original individualizations that he made. He talks fascial and elastic. Uh, he talks why some athletes may respond well to you know when at, when the athlete or the sprinter gets hurt and they have to be on the bike for a few weeks and they're going high speed and why that can work for some athletes and why it might not work for others talking on the fascial and muscular spectrum uh he's then going to get into uh, not only the different response of training or training responses of muscular and fascial but then getting into who is the racer and who is the trainer in practice when we're talking speed training. And this could work for track and field or team sport, by the way. This isn't just for track coaches. Anyone who's interested in speed, I think, has a lot to get out of this. Um, and then he's going to get into the makeup of those. I think there's a lot of neurotyping assertions that can be made there. And then we're going to talk about how to train each of them specifically for speed based off what they're outputting. And then we're going to talk about uh, how that all can carry over to team sports, so not just track and field, but also team sport. And and this is just this is just why, and this is why I love training because it is not a one size fits all. I used to sit there in my early twenties, mid twenties, and look at a training program and think, oh, this must be the holy grail, or like, or or just just have so many questions about it, be confused. But I feel like the more you know about, it all starts at the athlete, athlete centered training. The more you know about how athletes respond how they respond to practice and competition, what's happening with the neurotransmitter profile and everything there, 
the more we can understand the training program. Ross has blended this so beautifully, and this has been literally one of the podcasts that I have learned. It's filled in so many gaps, I should say. It has been a huge uh, fill-in-the-knowledge-gap podcast for me, and I think it will be for you guys as well. ton of cool quotes in the show notes, uh, and Ross is doing awesome things in the coaching sector. So without me uh, yabbering, yammering on anymore, <laughs> let's get to this show, episode 145 of the podcast with Coach Ross Jeffs. Ross, what's uh? So, what got you into the the field of sports performance? And what was your what was your start as an athlete? I think, like a lot of coaches, I was probably a frustrated athlete looking for ways to improve. Maybe as a young kid, like fifteen, sixteen years old, I was trying to get my hands on everything I could from Dan Path, Charlie Francis, Bushek Snyder, Lauren Seagrave, those kind of guys, and just basically improving my library as much as I can, so I could learn from from those sources. And then I eventually studied a sports science degree at the University of Bath, which is the top sports science degree in the UK, closely followed by Loughborough. And then I, I spent a little bit of time in Australia working with mainly team sports out there, a little bit of athletics, but I worked especially quite a lot in super rugby with players who have played with the Wallabies, New South Wales Waratahs, Melbourne Rebels, those kind of guys. And also in sevens, pro basketball, boxers, Grand Slam tennis. So I really started in a lot of different team sports. And then after I graduated from university, got a, more, a lot more involved in track, tracked my background. Like I, like I said, I was an athlete myself, a jumper, and kind of set up my thing in a place where I was from. And at the time, I had a lot of mentors, one of which was Jonas, who, who worked at Speedworks. And he kind of gave me a call up and said, look, we've got this role going here. Do you want to come across? So... I spent a, a, a great bit of time with Jonas while he had some, well, he still has probably Europe's best sprints group. And Jonas is a, is a genius. Like he has such a unique ability to take information from so many different sources and make it so concise and so, so less academic than maybe some of the information is and really dial it down to something his athletes can understand. And he's, he's really special with that. And he's got, obviously he's, maybe first generation Dan Path who's who's probably come from Tom Telesi you have that kind of Telesian Pathian and maybe like maybe I'm Dodudian and he's influenced my philosophy <laughs> quite a lot so I kind of took that and now I'm in a current currently in a role in Holland where I work at a regional training center working with sprints jumpers and hurdlers and trying to involve evolve my program on a day-to-day -day basis I like Dodudian. There's like three Ds. That's kind of hard. I'll have to ask Jonas what if there's a, a preference. Yeah. I mean, Telesian sounds very like there's, you know, it's there's not many repeating vowels in there. I have to think about something for that, but I, I like Maybe it. We though. can try and get that in a dictionary. Yeah, exactly. Uh, cool. Well, hey, so you were so you were a jumper. Obviously, near and dear to my heart. What were your uh, what were your events as you were uh, doing that in your athletic years? When I first started, I was a I was a high jumper. I was very good when I was very young. Like I think I was maybe ranked third in the UK as a twelve year old, and I think I jumped like one fifty five as a twelve year old, which is which is pretty decent. And then didn't grow, but was still pretty elastic. So I was then half good at triple jump, but my ankles couldn't really handle. So all, all I think I jumped by the end fifteen meters in triple jump, but that was off like a ten step run up. But just because my ankles couldn't handle it. The long jump was probably the only event that I could really handle and I managed to jump. I think 7.34 was my PB. And 
almost made the Commonwealth Games for Jersey. But just in the last probably five years of my career, just training to kind of keep that feeling up. So when you do coach, it's really good to have a feeling of those workouts. People always ask the question, should you be an athlete to be a good coach? I don't think you should. Like, so many great coaches in the UK have proved that now. Like Steve Fudge didn't come from a track background. Jonas didn't come from a track background. But I think they 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 understand movement and what movement feels like. And I think if you're a couch potato, it's going to be really difficult for you to feel what your athletes are feeling. So I think that's a really important message I learned from my career. Although it was, wasn't very successful, it really helps you prescribe and understand what the athletes are feeling yeah well, hey 24 a 24 foot plus long jump is uh that would be successful for me that was much more successful than my long jump so but uh i totally agree in the sense of the feeling that you get from being if not a track athlete just a, just an athlete in training and moving and, and understanding what it's like to be a better mover in context of sport that's like what that's almost what binds all this knowledge this this head knowledge together you know all the theories and all that stuff that's where it all I feel like at least as for me, especially that's where it, what's where it all kind of almost filters into that, that, you know, you as an athlete and helps you to understand things a lot better. So yeah, I, I, I would, I can see, I see where you're coming from with all that. It's cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Ross, you, uh, one of the things I really wanted to chat about is, you know, like, like I've done some really cool Christian, uh, neurotyping episodes with Christian Thibodeau and we've spoken a little bit about this, but like, historically so when you started coaching up to up until now how has have you gone through classifying athletes like you know we talk about athletes who respond better to plyos or heavy weights or or volume and intensity and novelty and all these things uh what's what's your journey been on on classifying athletes and how to train them especially obviously in the sprint and jump and power sector yeah i mean from the mentors i've really had they they didn't really talk too much about different types of athletes it was more about treating everybody as an individual and then kind of maybe around 2014 that whole idea about pushes and pullers came out but I struggled a little bit to identify that because you know pushes can learn to pull and, and pullers can learn to push and then I think last April I was in a training camp in Portugal uh, and I listened to, to yours and Robbie Bork's podcast with Christian Thibodeau and I found myself kind of nodding my head a lot of the ideas you guys were talking about and then funnily enough at the same time there was a Dutch coach out there who worked in in a similar concept called action typing which is linking motor skills with personality types but kind of for every seven that you go yeah that's right that's exactly what I see I probably there was two or three that you go "Mm, it doesn't quite fit in that and I think some coaches have kind of got addicted to the to the blueprint a little bit too much and I think you need to think more about those typings as a guide and where I'm at right now. I think in my mind, it's not really boxes. It's more like overlapping circles on a, on a Venn diagram. I think with the, the personality and neurotransmitting stuff, you've got to be a little bit careful because the psychosocial profiles may be a bit more plastic than the physiological. I think you can turn a donkey into a, a you can't turn a donkey into a racehorse but you can turn an asshole into a, like a really good human being. <laughs> I think we know from the behavioral science kind of stuff that you can massively change someone's psychology and it's a bit more epigenetic than maybe um, the physiological stuff was a bit more genetic. So 
kind of with, with that being said, I kind of see the, my profiles and, and I'm really talking about speed, speed events in track and field. I kind of see it as maybe concentric, um, elastic and, and fascial. And I kind of see concentric as one end of the spectrum and maybe fascial as the other. And then elastic, I think, sits somewhere in the middle. And the names aren't really important. I think it's they're terms that people can be recognizable to, but it's really semantics. And maybe if we describe them and describe what I see, it'll make a bit more sense. Yeah, yeah. So, let's, yeah, let's un- unpack that a little bit. I, I was going to say too, yeah, I know Christian had, and I, I first heard him on Robbie's podcast, and that's what prompted me. And I was just like you, I was nodding my head the whole time because it was like, you know, I I had spent the last like five years in, with the Braverman system and, and what Charles Poliquin had talked about and, and always trying to figure that out and hearing things like Charlie Francis said or did like with someone who had a weak nervous system. So he had to go run 500s or something. I'm like, what in the world? Like, you know, and, and just stuff that I had very little. It's almost like urban legends. Right. But you don't really know how to anchor it into something. And I, I do know Christian had said like, you know, and the environment is a really big part of what you end up getting and so being able to unpack that is certainly an art too uh like what's your to what's your base setting like what 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 um like what are you presenting versus what are you actually absolutely and i think before we uh maybe go into the individual things i think that's one of the things if an athlete comes to my program i'm not saying immediately i'm not doing certain tests to say you're this type of athlete, you're that type of athlete, you're that type of athlete. I think I have a really good baseline program that is a good stress testing program. So athletes will come into the program and I'll only change a few variables to kind of really get an idea of what this athlete does respond to. Because if you try and box them initially, like athletes are athletes are really adaptable, man. So like they might be going through still be going through their developmental phase and I've seen athletes go from one side of the spectrum to completely the other they go from being these skinny little elastic twigs to having ridiculous muscle mass and and being extremely powerful and it's the same time if they've come from a come from a coach that's really kind of heavy in volume does a lot of kind of a lot of volume of running and they come and they tell you right I'm a 200 meter runner speed endurance is my strength but then they may they might train with me a year and all of a sudden 60 meters is their best event and and their two is even stronger as well so athletes definitely evolve so i think having a really good baseline program and a stress testing program is a good starting point and what that might look like if an athlete comes into the program we might spend the first month it might be more kind of building some kind of tissue tolerance some kind of improving the quality of the soft tissue and that might be spending a bit more time in the weight room slightly 60 70 percent weight plus slightly kind of heavier ish to get some remodeling in the tissues and then at the same time you are doing acceleration work you are doing some form of some voluminous running and with these type of groups you can you can see pretty quickly how they adapt so the fast twitch guys which are on one side of the spectrum, they they might come out of a phase like that. And actually, they've not done much, much running, but actually they look pretty good. And you'll get a fascial guy come out of that and they'll look sloppy, they'll look slow, their ground ton- contacts will look crappy. And then you go, okay, we're starting to get an idea of does that athlete need good volume of lifting in this program? Probably not. We didn't do any harm because some way down the road, they'll thank me for that 
having that good quality soft tissue and tissue tolerance and then maybe in the next block okay let's improve increase the the volume of running so we might do a bit more lactate glycolytic running and then all of a sudden those fast twitch guys maybe their contacts look a bit more sloppy they look a bit heavier on their ground contacts and then the fascial guys actually they're starting to show some rhythm they're starting to look more natural have more kind of flow in their, in their running and you've already identified kind of maybe two months into your training these athletes probably need more volume of running these athletes need more lifting and then the guys in the middle which are elastic guys they're probably the guys that haven't changed much and then if you might go to another block of okay you might do a bit more plyometrics in these blocks then those are the guys that really and probably tend to be your jumpers kind of get a really good response from that and I think as coaches we change too many variables too quickly and we change maybe too min- too much minutiae too quickly like lifting as a general stimulus is is a big thing I, I don't think we should go into a program and go okay should you be doing 5-3-1 should you be doing tri-basic should you be doing a back squat or a hip thrust I don't think they're the questions we should ask ourselves initially it's actually how do you respond to some kind of heavyish lifting? How do you respond to some kind of explosive-ish lifting? And then make our decisions on big rocks before we go minutiae. And then I think after kind of six months, you have a really good idea of what works. And many coaches will say, it kind of takes two years to, to fit into the program and see what happens. But I think that's just if you if you try and change too many variables quickly. And it's also that kind of if you when athletes are injured, you may not be able to do some volume of running. You might have to do way more kind of hamstring stuff if they've had a hamstring strain and they come back faster. So you, then you're getting a good idea of what works. We've, we've heard all the time athletes doing bike workouts for months and then coming and running really faster. And then I've had the same thing maybe with a fascial athlete. They might have had an injury where they had to be on the bike for a month and they come out and they just look like trash. They've got no rhythm. They've got no flow and and they don't look like they should. So that's why I kind of, I think you have to have a great starting point with your program and have a real good stress test. Yeah. So the, uh, so you were saying too, the, the fascial athlete did not do good coming off the bike versus like a muscular athlete would. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I don't, I think. The fast twitch guys have a really good ability to to tune tune their system from just having some level of muscular tension, and they don't kind of need to put as many steps down on the ground and I have see. the volume of running that the fascial guys need. Oh no, that's a good point. That's a really good point. Um, no, I, I like that a lot. I uh, you know as you're we talking too, I I, I kind of piece this together in my head. I mean, there's I have like four follow ups. So I'll, well, I'll start with this one. Um, was you were talking about. Um, and I was trying to put this together as you were saying it was like you were talking about fascial elastic or concentric uh, elastic fascial like going from the the force end I guess to the speed yeah. end and I was like oh yeah that's like um, the the DB Hammer you know Inno Sport book that everyone always asked me about uh, the his three main categories was duration if speaking from the nervous system was like a duration dominant. Uh, a magnitude dominant and a uh, rate dominant. So I feel like those, that's probably pretty similar, right? To what you're looking at. You yeah. have like the person who uses muscular force, the person who uses an elastic magnitude, which is me. <laughs> and then you have people who are just like, just super like, just fat, just pure fast. Um, yeah. And somewhere on that. So somewhere on that scale, it probably fits up pretty closely, I'd imagine. Absolutely. I think the difference is maybe 
when Christian talks about it and when he talks about it, they're talking from a global athlete perspective. And I've come up with these concepts more just so, so working with sprinters where actually you're restricted by your event, like to run 100 meters fast and be and be one of the best in the world, you're going to have to run 12 meters per second. And whereas if you're a team sport athlete, like, you, you don't need to attain those levels. So like, I'm really like, I'm trying to make people fast. And rather than that, I have to make them fast. I have to make them fit. I have to make them strong. I have to make them powerful. My event is my competition exercise is, is what velocity can you attain? You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, that's the, that really is the core of it all is, is uh, the ultimate velocity you're capable of. I, you know, I wanted to say this too, is I, I, I kind of there was a lot we were going through before, and you were talking about action typing, and I'm curious. Mm-hmm. I, I that's so I haven't heard of that. So it's it's a type of so basically different personality types are going to exhibit different motor patterns and skills and strategies. Yeah, action typing. I think that's kind of something that's more prevalent in Europe. If you want to know more about it, there's a really good website with some great testimonials, and yeah, it's basically it's linking motor skill and personality types in a similar way that Christian does, but with just slightly different categories and slightly different assessments. The assessments are quite interesting, actually. I'd be interested to see what you think of them. They're quite, um, they're quite original and quite different. It involves um, standing in some interesting positions, pulling some interesting faces and putting your tongue in certain positions in your mouth. Interesting. Yeah, no, that's uh, after we're done with this podcast, I'm probably going to check out that website right away because I, I, mean, I, just, I just love that stuff. Like I have books like... I have like weird books. Like I live in I live in Berkeley, California, and I have books like like Bent Out of Shape, where it's like your personality type and your posture and how that like fits together and things like that. And it's it's actually almost like crazy how much you're reading through it and you're thinking about it. It's like wow, that is it's almost eerily um, it's almost like eerily true as you're reading about it. So I I really love that stuff, and I'll definitely check it out. Um, so, uh, with one of the things too, like you had said, was tissue tolerance. So, you're talking about you're talking about the weight room to improve one's tissue tolerance. So, is that like work capacity you're talking about, or could you expand on that point just a little bit? Yeah, it's kind of one of those semantics phrases. I think Dan Path maybe talks about it. It's tai Chi in the weight room. You do some kind of you're you're taking uh, the tissue through kind of large ranges of motion with some level of load and there's there's some level of remodeling going on and if you do that for kind of for higher reps and high um, time under tension through some specific exercises you're going to get some some a lot of remodeling going on and it really improves some good quality soft tissue it's like imagine the other side of the spectrum where all you do all the time is is shitty quarter squats where mm-hmm. your knees your knees are going massively over your toe and you're grinding the shit out of your patella like the 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 makeup of the quadriceps and the the muscles around those joints are going to be really really gritty really really crappy. Whereas if you if you, if you're squatting with great mechanics and controlling the load um, for a good time under tension, like that's what effectively the DOMS is going to be the next day. Your your muscle is remodeling, mm-hmm. and all that's going to be there is good quality soft tissue. It's like going into the shop. You either go to the cheap buy the cheapest chicken or you go to the organic session and buy the organic chicken like you want your muscles to be the organic chicken basically if you want to be uh, able to resist the training demands coming up yeah no I, I know exactly what you're saying like i've had similar experiences with like 
like deep deep squat cycles like it was more of a novel thing but it's like almost like there's this power i accessed in like my glutes and, and hamstrings and posterior chain that i i almost didn't know i had the first time i really started going through that and then um and more recently like the jay schrader world of uh extreme iso lunges and because that's pure muscle length under load and capacity and that's actually really changed the way i think about a lot of things and doing those with a high frequency so no, I'm yeah, glad, I'm glad I, I, I love that. I love that kind of stuff where we might have a recovery week, or again back to kind of the GPP phase, and and doing that kind of like extreme isos or, or isometrics in a specific position. And any athletes who have kind of niggly hips, like niggly niggly knee areas, ankle areas, you you do either some kind of extreme iso, holding it for a significant amount of time, and they come out feeling like a new person. It's mm-hmm. like they're they spray some WD-40 in their joints and all of a sudden they're ready to go again. Yeah, I love it. No, yeah, exactly. No, I've, I've found some really good things through that. It's like, it's almost like, that stuff's so simple too. It's just like, it's almost just like you and your muscle tissues and your mind. And there's a lot of, uh, yeah. there's just a lot of cool benefits. So, uh, well, I'm glad, I'm glad I asked you that. I, one of the, the things I really wanted to get to, so we'll, we'll roll with it in here is, um, so you just, uh, so all that leading up to, uh, you wrote a really cool article for Simply Faster that, Although it didn't get a ton of shares, uh, it's one of the best things I've read in a really long time. And it was about uh, racers and trainers. And could you go into a little bit about uh, what you're talking about with those types of athletes and how you were going to specifically train a racer versus a trainer for for speed, like you're talking about? Sure. I think the the original idea is is purely in the context of more so sprinters, but we can definitely try and apply it to other other events or sports afterwards. But if you're doing some form of speed work, be it kind of flying 30s, competitive 60-meter reps, whatever it might be, if you ask the athlete to run a maximal effort, you have some athletes that can get very close to or even attain their competition race velocity in training as long as they are somewhat fresh. And you get some athletes that will, will not go anywhere near it. And in the past, maybe people would categorize them as kind of lazy athletes or people who kind of don't want to turn it on and just kind of show up for the meet. And the importance of this is like, in reality, both athletes are giving 100% effort, but the speeds they're attaining is somewhere anywhere between probably 85% and maybe 100% of the actual PB velocity. So the stimulus that's being applied from athlete to athlete varies massively. Like imagine me and you, for an example, say we both run 11 flat for the 100 in training, if we were to measure a 30 to 60 meter segment, you should probably be around kind of 295-ish if you were running at competition velocity. So coach might say, right, we're going to intensify our repeat uh, repeat short speed endurance runs. So instead of two times, three times 60 at 95%, we're going to go four times 60 at 100%. Okay, you run yours and you're always kind of between 295 and three. And I run mine, and I'm around 310 to 315. So you run like around 295 to 3 in training, and I'm going 310 to 315. But we're both the same pace, and we're both giving 100% effort, but there's, there's such a different stimulus being applied to it. And what I've found with those kind of races and trainers is the racers actually improve their velocity every kind of two to four weeks, but the trainers kind of stagnate and actually a lot of them don't really get faster or even 
get slower in training. And yeah, they might they might still run slightly faster in races. They might get better conditions. They might just execute a better race model in the competition. But in training, they're they're not getting better. So I kind of did a, a miniature case study with uh, a, a speed gun where I could really measure instantaneous velocities and. I took an athlete where they were kind of running 90 to 95% consistently in a training block and then ramped that up to 100%. And they could hit their race speeds in training. But after two weeks of that, they got slower. And then they, this was something that had happened a couple of years before at the same time. So there was definitely something going on. And I think in the past, we've we've always been told, speed work should be there all the time in all athletes and and it's a really important stimulus but if you if you look a bit deeper actually i don't think i don't think it's doing what it says on the tin and actually if you if you have a trainer who can consistently apply a very high speed stimulus in training they they fry themselves it's like imagine doing four to six 60 meter races in one day like they're going to take weeks to come back off that and we're doing that on a week-to-week basis and some might adapt and kind of get through it if they have kind of a, a, a crazy nervous system which can adapt to that kind of work but most of them either plateau or just get worse and i don't think this is just so i put that article out there and, and got some some really interesting responses and like even from some different track and field events like i had a froze coach zane dukman who's one of the top throws coaches in the UK, he said, look, it's exactly the same in shot put. Like the athletes that ramp it up in training and go throw hell to lever and, and burn their intensity just just fizzle out and they don't improve as well as the guys that that aren't hitting those similar kind of numbers to their to their competition throwing performance. And maybe if we look around some of the other events, maybe they've got it right. Like jumpers never jump off a full approach in training hurdlers never hurdle off the, the race competition distance. And it seems like when there's a competition combination of high force, high velocity, high power expression, that the nervous system just can't regularly apply that stimulus in high volumes. Yeah, I, I really um I really like what you said about so the trainer, basically the athlete. And I think of these like and I don't know if you'd agree, like probably that athlete who's like the two B, maybe two A on the neurotyping spectrum, right? Like or three, obviously, if that athlete even is in the power speed power events. Um, but like, you know, that and as Christian has talked about, like the peaking or like the, the choking and peaking uh, and competition episode we did a little while back, like those are the athletes who can do good at like the low key meet. But then when it's when it's the championship meet and there's a huge like emotional arousal and they're like over the top, that's too much. And I think about, I love the idea of the 460s, like four by 60 meters, really common speed training prescription. But yeah, if, if you're a trainer and you're going to hit what about what you'd hit in competition, each of those, that's just going to smash you versus, um, I mean, I know I was always like an athlete who really couldn't come close to what I was capable of in competition. Like my best high jump was seven feet, but the best I ever made in practice was like six, seven, maybe six, eight or so like two fourteen mm-hmm. in competition. And then uh, one, let's see, about two, just a little over two meters, 201, 203 in practice. And, and all my, a lot of my high jumpers I trained were like that. So you just take it for granted. But this was before I knew anything about all this stuff. But it's, it's, it's definitely made a lot more sense over the years. 
So it's, I mean, and even like, I think you could apply it to anything, right? Like shot put that athlete, probably like they talk about doing range throws, like where you just have to throw to like, not as far as you can, but just throw to this marker, right? Like how, how applicable could that be for those, those events and those athletes where it's each, each output is of such a higher magnitude. Definitely. Yeah. It, it made me think uh, too, when you wrote that article, I thought about like easy strength, like with weightlifting, because I'd always put it together, I guess, a little bit with a little bit with weightlifting, like you don't want to like Dan, John and Pavel, they're, you know, the big thing with easy strength. And I don't not sure what neurotypes they are exactly. Um, but like the idea that you always want to leave reps in the tank, like if you get too emotionally amped up for any set in the weight room, you kind of you kind of end up frying yourself out. You don't, you're not going to have as good a day tomorrow or, you know, you, you could tip that cup of the nervous system. Although I have seen one, a athletes who really do thrive on going a little bit heavier than what easy strength would prescribe, I guess you could say, but like it, I always, I, for some reason, I only thought that applied to lifting. Like I never really, cause I would hear, I've heard, you know, coaches like Stu McMillan advocate, not like, you know, sub maximal, like max speed training, so to speak. And, and I was kind of wondering, I, I, it never really hit me how that all really truly applied from a neural perspective until you wrote that article talking about if you are capable of hitting your max speed in practice, now you probably have to do something else. Absolutely, and, um, it's probably where we're we're at in a, in a um, as a as a field. To be honest, like we in the past sixty years, like how how much of the workouts have actually changed? To be honest. Like you go back to kind of the Bud Winter, he was he was training kind of relaxation based training all these years ago. He was using a stopwatch, and now we have we have free lap and different timing methods. But it's also it's as a help. It's also a bit of a hindrance because mm-hmm. we wanna we're then trying to hit run as fast as we can, and we're chasing speed numbers rather than actually we maybe wanna chase different types of numbers rather than maximal numbers but because we have this technology in front of us we're probably not using it in a in a, probably the most optimal method no oh, I, I couldn't agree more and uh first success i i love my free lap system even if simply faster wasn't the sponsor of the show it's <laughs> it's been such an awesome thing but i think about that's why i really loved uh sam portland's like speedgate golf if you i don't know if you caught that one talking about yeah, I did. Oh Very my good. gosh, like so many light bulbs, right? Because if you have a lot of two A's and B's and it's a team sport too, because track sprinters are, you know, you just, if it's a hundred meter runner, I mean, probably a type one, probably dopamine sensitive, right? Like, uh, but team sport, you could have anything. And so if you're working, I was like, that's so genius. Cause now it's like, well, every run is sub maximal and technical and, and the reward, the dopamine reward comes from hitting the, 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 the guesstimated time. Right. And, uh, that I honestly even uh, even in tapering my swimmers for uh, the NCAA championships this year in the weight room, one of the things I did after that show was like my swimmers love doing vertical jumps on the just jump man. I mean they love it, but I going into a taper meet, I, I was thinking, okay, well look, if you hit like thirty nine during the year, like one of my guys did, I just knew if he didn't get close to that during that taper time, that he'd take a dopamine hit and that wouldn't be good. So all I let him do for the last three weeks is I would say just try to hit 34, five, you have one jump and you have to hit 34, five. And you know, if you, I'll be, I'll give you a pat on the back, you know, if you do that, but I would never, nothing could be maxable at that point at all. All the, all the, all the reward systems really revolved around. Anyway, I'm rabbit trailing. I just, I just love that show. And so anyways, I think it just opens up a lot of possibilities to using timing systems when you have those types of athletes and you know, 
that's going to happen. Uh, I, I was going to ask you too. So, so you make adjustments based on those athletes, right? Like, so that's, so let's get in the nuts and bolts. Obviously training a racer is easy, right? It's like, it's like feed the cats, you know, it's, it's, it's high speed, you know, they can handle it. They're going to adapt. They're going to get better. Um, how do you, ha- how do you, how do you train the guy or girl who can, who's going to get blown up by doing those specific maximal efforts too much? Yeah, I think one one point quickly of the races, yeah, you can throw them in the fire and see how their technical model handles under stress. But also, once in a once in a blue moon, those guys can show up as a trainer. And I've had those guys who usually will be always under their, their competition performance, but they'll show up and they'll be ready. And, and you might get carried away and say, "Shit, this guy's this guy's ready to go." And then you might do that a couple of weeks, two three weeks back to back. And, and that just completely fries them for months. And so you always, I've had a couple of athletes who just turned up probably once in the competition phase every year that they're just ready and you know they're ready to go and meet them. So you just have to back off and go, okay, dial it down a bit. So if you do have the racers, um, sorry, if you do have the trainers, I think I remember reading Charlie Francis's Speed Trap years ago and he talks about Ben Johnson who, who can literally hit on his stopwatch to the hundredth or tenth exactly the time that he wants to hit. And you have some of those athletes that are so neurally tuned. If they hit a two nine five, you go, okay, can we just dial it down to a to a three oh low? And and they can hit that there. They're so neurally wired that they have the ability to make those micro adjustments. And on the topic of Charlie, he had those the concept of intensity limits where actually I want you to accelerate as hard as you can to 10 15 20 25 30 and then maintain and that's a good way to go okay where does your athlete hit that kind of 90 to 95 percent of their velocity put an intensity limit there and then they can maintain and then it's just kind of what is your um philosophy as a coach like if you if you like to base a lot of your if you have a like a really in-depth technical model just just get the, the athlete to focus on the execution of the task in hand and if you throw them in a competitive situation with with numbers and timing gates, that they they they're gonna they're gonna um, rile themselves up. So you just take those stimuluses away, take take timing gates away, take competitiveness away. This is something kind of Jonas said to me. Like you might write acceleration on the program, but really there's there's ten different acceleration options you can accelerate in spikes with numbers and com- competition you can accelerate in spikes um just with numbers you can accelerate in spikes on your own you can expel- accelerate in flats you can accelerate just using a pulley or a sled you can accelerate with a prowler so there's there's so many ways you can dial down intensity and on the the max fee side of things like sprint float sprint is a is a is a workout in most coaches locker and they usually dial it down to 20 meters, 20 meters, 20 meters. And I, I put the speed gun on one of those workouts and the athletes on the money, 90 to 95% every time. And yeah, it's just using your initiative as a coach, get them to think about rhythm, relaxation, execution, and you can really modify um, intensities in that way. Even with the, the wickets, you can, you can bring spacings in or take them out, whatever you know will dial down the athlete's intensity but still allowing them to execute the technical model at hand. What do you think about, um, like I know I'd, I'd said earlier and someone had said this, like, you know, Charlie, even like a hundred, I don't know if this is true. Maybe it was, maybe I'm, maybe I'm getting my stuff wrong, but like a hundred meter sprinter who wasn't that neurally wired or a hundred, 200 guy and 
Charlie had him run 500, like a couple 500s or something or something like that. I don't know if it was quite that extreme, but like, you know, that was his work, his, some of his speed work, I guess, quote unquote, right? Like, or like, or just, uh, what do you think about the idea of doing like higher, um, like higher volume stuff or longer runs or any, anything that's more, you know, the, in the speed endurance world for, for those, um, trainers, those people who can hit that max in the practice context? Yeah, I think it goes back to the, the typing side of things like where do you fit on the spectrum? Are you more fast twitch? Are you more fascial? If you get a fast twitch guy to run a lot of kind of lactic glycolytic work and higher volumes of running, like they'll they'll die. I I had an athlete that went from eleven four to ten six and then handed him off to a university program and he went from ten six to eleven four because all he <laughs> did was run repeat. 300s even though that was complete opposite of the kind of athlete he was but then yeah if you do have the fascial athlete who's a trainer like that's gold like run them run them till the cows come home do loads of glycolytic work and they thrive off it as long as they have the ability to handle those loads and you've progressed it um realistically then then they will thrive off that and that's like again bringing it back to jonas that's what he had a unique ability to do like dan path came into the country and a lot of people took his program at face value and said, right, we're not going to do any tempo running. We're not going to do any lactic work. But you had all these successful British coaches who, whose program was based on speed endurance, mainly because of the climate and we didn't have um, indoor tracks. But they were successful. And I think you have to respect other coaches' paradigms. There is so many roads to roam and there are so many ways to do it. And if you see a successful program, don't say that's just because they have great genetically talented athletes if they grind out success success and they don't have a small grave they don't have a big graveyard then you can take something from that program and learn what makes it great but maybe as to answer your question about the 500s yeah i think a lot of charlie's stuff has got lost in translation mm-hmm. yeah for anyone who's not maybe read angela isenko's book that's a it's a very good book to actually see in a lot of what charlie's methods were and works out from the voice of one of the athletes yeah, I, I like um, something you mentioned. Uh, it's almost like this: the the racers. You could have a basically a fascial, elastic, or um, or concentric driven racer, or the same thing for a trainer. So it's like you have these six classifications in the context of of track and field and speed and sprinting or jumping or what what have you. And it's like now you almost have six ways that you can train an athlete. Like, <laughs> and and now that does make sense. Like I've, I've, I've dug into this stuff and written stuff on, well, why are there some like high jumpers who seem to like a lot of tempo training or even sprinters for that matter, you know, like, and so when you put that onto, it's like, okay, wow, now this makes more sense. Like, and, uh, that's really cool. I've never thought about it quite in that way with the, with the scope of, of a fascial and elastic and how that all fits. And, 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 uh, well, that's, that's good stuff Ross. I, I, um, I, I think that there's a lot that people can get from this. Uh, one thing I did want to get into, because I mean, for those uh, sports performance coaches out there who are still listening and didn't tune out with track and field, and hope I hope you guys are still around, right? Like, uh, I'm sure all this can plug in no matter what you're doing. If you're training for the 40 or you're doing uh, any sort of agility derivative work, like if you are working with a team sport athlete, uh, you would probably make, and it's timed, you would probably make a similar adjustment, like uh maybe slightly higher slightly higher volume the outcome is based on something else like do you have any thoughts or recommendations on team sport athletes in this context 
yeah, for, for field sports, I say five years ago, my workouts looked just like my sprint workouts. But if I was being honest with myself, what I saw on the field wasn't transferring. And now I look, I look kind of to the guys like in the UK, Ben Rosenblatt and James Wilde. And this is where I think a bit of the Franz Bosch stuff comes in and is relevant, using more of a constraints-based approach and using principles of self-directed learning. So like, I'll talk about an example in rugby because that's where most of my um, experience has been in. So we'll always start with the basic technical model. Like in order to accelerate, you need to understand how to go forward and what that feels like. So you might use a pulley or a sled and you might teach them the basics of kind of shin angles, trunk angles, what that feels like. And the same with upright mechanics. You have max velocity hurdles. You need to know how to bounce, how to maintain your pelvis in the right position. What does front side running feel like so you don't get injured? And then that's where you have to branch off in the different areas. And you have to be like, okay, there's, there's different layers, layers to this. You can't just understand the basics. You need to have intent for that. And if we go back to sprinters, like those are the basics. Yeah, you need to know your angles, but really you have to have intent. Can you project your body? Can you be reactive? Can you switch? Can you grow your stride length and frequency on each step? And can you put together a, a race model? But then for field sport athletes, their race models are infinite because there's there's an inf infinite amount of options. So if we take like a, a max velocity task, what I might do for a rugby player is say, I might have a linear pattern with also some swerve patterns. I might put some max velocity hurdles down for, for five steps every five meters. And I might say, right, every time you go over the hurdle, I want you to leave with your right foot. So they're trying to reorganize their body, still execute the task as fast as possible, but and still execute with good mechanics, but they have to make micro-reactive decisions based on their external environment. And say, for example, like you need to be able to accelerate on a curve. So we might do a curved acceleration with a sled. So you're still learning to put your steps down in the most efficient angles. But when you come off the corner, like the sled might spin off and it might pull you in a certain direction. And that's where Franz's concept of dissociation between lower and upper body might be more relevant. Like imagine an example in rugby. So you run 40 meters for the first part of your acceleration. You have to hand off a 20 stone guard. And then you've picked up some velocity and now you have to swerve past the center and then straighten up. And while you're doing this, it's you have a ball in your hand and it's a 70-second minute and you're knackered. And if you think doing linear sprints from a three-point start is going to give you the tools to handle those kind of environments, like you're, you're, you're lying to yourself. So I think maybe if you put this stuff up online, some people would think it's gimmicky, but you're trying to be specific in a, in a non-specific way. And you're trying to create as many different constraints to maximize the team sport players toolbox as, as big as possible. Yeah, I, I totally agree on that. I think that it, to make things transfer to team sport play, there is a very different set of rules than, I mean, yeah, there's, there's not, I mean, it's nice to get faster, but how much you get out of run a 30 meter better from a three point start is very limited at some point for those guys and gals. And uh, so I'm assuming too, like, you know, especially like the, the Franz Bosch stuff. And I know like on a podcast with Kieran and Flatty was talking about actually being able with GPS and, and things starting to be able to actually quantify how this 
that stuff could improve and make then you can start to see the outcomes of it um, but i'm assuming because it's more technical in nature and you're forcing micro adjustments and things and it's not max velocity per se uh in the linear straight linear sense do you think because of the technical nature of it that kind of absolves a little bit of that like if someone was a trainer right and you did too much of it uh they would overtrain but since it's since it's technical again maybe that mitigates the risk of overtraining i hope that makes sense yeah, it does. And and I think you're right. And I think maybe surface comes into it as well. Like you're going to do a lot of that stuff on grass and they're not going to be able to hit the velocities they hit on a track and spike. So that's also a factor. But yeah, you've got probably got to be a little bit careful with your more fast switch players. Maybe in rugby that might be uh, the 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 forwards, sorry, the backs, who the, your wingers who, who are really kind of wiry, fast switch guys who, who can really turn things up and if you do too much of that stuff you're going to kill them yeah yeah that's a good thing to think about as well i'm sure like yeah how much how much volume can a 1a tolerate tolerate versus you know like you you how much do you have to do to make a change technically uh versus how much is good for you before you're you get that dopamine or the workout hangover i like that christian tv calls it the workout hangover (laughs) uh so Oh, it's good stuff. I, I like. I feel like there's applications for all this uh, for any any coach and all this stuff, and it's really good. So, um, well, that's the end of the questions I had for you, Ross. Though, but really, man, really good stuff today. I, I really enjoyed this one. I'm sure I'll probably have some follow up stuff for you offline at some point. And I am off to check out that action typing website, and I'll you know point my tongue in different directions and and do uh, the test. So, <laughs> uh, I'm excited for that. Uh, but anyways, it was it was great talking to you today, man. Thank you so much. No problem. Cheers, Joe. Hey, thanks for tuning in for that show. Appreciate you guys being here with us. If you liked it, uh, don't hesitate to head on to iTunes, leave us a rating or review. We would totally appreciate that in spreading the word of what we're doing, trying to just get this huge bandwidth of brilliant coaches, get the information out there to leave no stone unturned, no athlete left behind, those athletes who were not responding as well to that high-speed, high-quality program, how to serve them and serve the bandwidth of athletes. That's what we're all about, making us all better coaches. And I'm, I'm a better coach every time I do this. So happy for it all. Don't forget to visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology. And again, great blog, the blog where I found this article and got connected with Ross. So check out what they are doing. They also have awesome items in their store, free lap timing system, such an awesome timing system. I get asked about it a lot. I can't recommend it enough and a lot of other awesome products. So be sure to check them out. We will be back next week with another great guest. We'll see you guys next week.